Good morning. Uh, we're grateful for each and every one of you that is here with us this morning. Um, uh, before we go to our message, uh, the last time I spoke, uh, I challenged us uh, to be praying for those that we that we know, that we love, that are not yet saved. And uh, just a reminder in that, are we doing that? Um, are we taking the time? Do we show, we claim we care. Um, do we care enough to pray for those that are lost? And so that's a reminder uh, for us to be praying for those that we love that are not yet, are, that are not yet Christ. Uh, and so as we go to our time in the Word, uh, please join me in prayer uh, and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, do, we do praise you and thank you for your goodness and mercy and patience and kindness. Uh, we thank you that you've loved us, and we thank you that you have uh, made our lives so pleasant and so sweet. You've surrounded us with people that love us. Uh, you've surrounded us uh, with so many good things, and they are gifts from your hands. Uh, we did not deserve them. We did not earn them. You gave them to us. Um, one of the things you gave us um, was what you wanted us to know in your word. And so as we look at it this morning, uh, I just pray that you'd be pleased uh, with what we say and uh, give us understanding, uh, and not just understanding, uh, but the will to hear and then do what you've commanded. We thank you now. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning... Uh, is in our bulletin. I believe it's a copy printed there. You can join me if you like. You can read it in your Bible. It's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, what we want to look at this morning, we want to uh, give a little explanation, if you will, for another verse that is very commonly read and, uh, and heard, at the, particularly this time of year, and that comes out of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, and John wrote, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we will be commemorating that, be celebrating that uh, just in a couple days. And, and our text, I think, gives us insight uh, to an important aspect of that, and that is why. Why did the Word become flesh and dwelt amongst us? Um, why did... God become man. It needs to be really understood that when the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that Jesus was not 50% man and 50% divine. He was 100% and is 100% human and 100% divine. Why did he leave that utopian existence that he experienced in heaven, come down and take upon himself uh, many of the limitations of human flesh. Uh, in the book of Philippians chapter 2, it talks about that he did not consider those, if you will, perks that he enjoyed as God as something to be grasped or clutched, but he willingly set aside some of the prerogatives that he knew as deity. And so, he lived the human experience. He experienced joy and sorrow. Uh, he experienced love and uh, betrayal. He experienced hunger and thirst. Uh, he certainly experienced pain. And he ultimately experienced uh, the final human experience, and that, of course, was death. So why did the Word become flesh and dwell amongst us? In our text in Hebrews today, gives two explanations for that. One, he had something to say. And two, he had something to do. He was on a mission. He had something to accomplish. Well, 
Our text goes like this. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. You know, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about there is what we commonly know as the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was revealed to the various writers in over a long period of time. And as the writer of Hebrews wrote this passage that we're looking at this morning, the latest installment in what we know as the Old Testament was about 500 years old. You know, to put that in terms we understand, you know, that would be us like looking back at the time of Christopher Columbus. You know, that seems an eternity ago for most of us, doesn't it? We, we tend to consider old like, you know, something that happened uh, in the 80s. You know, that's really old and outdated. And this was, you know, this was way back, 500 years. And if you went back to the oldest writings, now you're dating back even a thousand or more years beyond that. And he says this, he, he wrote this, he revealed his will uh, to the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Our Bible teaches us that all scripture is inspired by God. It's literally God-breathed. And God spoke to the forefathers. That would be, you know, that would be the Hebrew ancestors way back when in that long ago period. He spoke what he wanted us to know, but he did so through human authors. And so as we look at the, at the various revelations of what God wanted us to know, it looks different. You know, Moses had a different style than Daniel did. You know, Joshua sounds different than Jonah, and so on. It's all God's truth. It's not that the Old Testament doesn't contain truth. It comes in various forms, various styles. He revealed his will in that way. A prophet is merely one who proclaims God's truth, and our writer says that that took many shapes. He also says it took many portions, and that's a uh, and that's an interesting term. What is a portion? It's not the whole thing, is it? It's kind of a fragment. So what he's saying is that, that this, this uh, what we know as the Old Testament, was not that it wasn't true. It was perfectly true, but it wasn't complete. And it came in bits and pieces. It came in fragments. And he says this, but he says, in these last days... In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. These last days, this is the final epic, if you will. This commenced at what we commemorate in a couple of days, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. This is the final days. We live in the final days. It says in these final days, he would reveal himself in his son. He's spoken to us in that way. And this would be the narrative that ties everything together. You know, we can look back at uh, the Old Testament, and through the uh, real advantage of hindsight, you know, we can kind of say, oh, yeah, this, you know, this, I can see how we can connect all the dots and fit everything and so on and so forth. Uh, But if you didn't have that advantage of hindsight, it would have been a little bit more difficult. When Jesus came, he spoke to us. He tied, he was the one that brought it all together. He sharpened our focus and our vision so that we could say, yeah, that would make sense. Starts to make sense. I can see that. You know, and someone a number of years ago put it this way. They said, the new, meaning the New Testament, is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. So Jesus came on the scene and he spoke to us and just put everything together. We can understand it. It makes sense. Now, do we know and understand everything there is to know? We don't. Our Bible say that the Word of God is living and active. And so it continues, even to this day, even after being looked at and studied for thousands of years, it continues to reveal more bits of truth to us. It doesn't change or deny or contradict in any way. It just fills in more of the blanks. So as we go, we continue to grow with it. It's living and active. So he spoke to us in these days. It's the last narrative. It's the final thing that ties everything together. Well, in our text today, before we look at just what Jesus said, what he had to say to us, 
our writer of Hebrews gives us five reasons why what Jesus has to say is relevant and what is important. And why when he speaks, we should listen, we should pay attention. There's five reasons for that. First of all, he says, God appointed him heir of all things. Now, who inherits the estate? Who is the one who has control of the estate? The heir. Right? He's the one that if you're planning for the future, you better take him into account. Right? Because he ultimately is going to have complete control. And in the same way, Jesus ultimately will have complete control over his creation. Now, technically, you say he does already, and that would be true. It's not that God is, is lacking control, but Jesus has yet to realize the finality of that. And why is that? And that's because sin still exists in this world. Now, Jesus has defeated sin, and he did that at the cross. The victory was utter, and it was complete. However, we might say what we are experiencing now is mop-up operations. The victory was never in question after the cross, but the skirmishes go on. In much the same way, you know, if you're a historian of World War II, you understand that after the Battle of Stalingrad, German forces had zero chance of winning that war. They suffered casualties of over a million, and after that, they would never recover from that. But that occurred, you know, that was right in 1943, but we also know, you know, what happened in June of 1944 with the invasion of Normandy, and later the Battle of the Bulge, and we understand there was much pain and loss of life and suffering and misery before the Third Reich would finally completely go out of existence in June of 1945. Those were mop-up operations. And if you, if you were in Normandy, you'd say, huh, mop-up operations? That looked like the real deal. And Jesus is the heir, and sin has been defeated. The victory is secure, but we are still seeing mop-up operations. We're, we're, that is what we're going through right now. He's the heir of all things. He's the one that we're going to have to contend with. He's the one we want to account for when we're looking to the future. He has that. He said, through him also he made the world. I ask you the question, who's, who can create but God? You know, mankind says, oh, you know, I created this, or so on and so forth. And he uses that term in a, in a very loose sense of create. And I, I would say that what man calls creation, it's merely a reshuffling a deck that he was handed. We don't see mankind making the deck. Only God can create. And he says this, through whom? Jesus, through whom? He also made the world. Now, that term for world can also be translated ages. And so when we think of God creating things, we think of what? Matter. We think of space. We think of energy. And he's saying time as well. Time did not exist before God created it. God simply existed he was the I am, the eternally existent one. So through Jesus, everything was created. Time, matter, energy, and space. Thirdly, he said he is the radiance of his glory. This term for radiance means outshining. It does not mean reflection. Uh, the difference would be the difference between the moon and the sun. You know, the moon is bright and it shines, but why does it shine? It's reflecting the sun. The sun radiates. The sun is the source of the light in this case. Text says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory. Jesus radiate himself radiates glory. Fourthly, he's the exact representation of his nature. There's a dialogue that occurred between Philip, the apostle Philip, and Jesus in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, verse 9. And Philip says this, he says, if you would just show us the Father, it would be enough. And Jesus is a little bit frustrated at this point, and, and he keeps his cool. And he says, 
I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Don't look any further. He is the exact representation of his nature. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus refers to himself as I am. That is the same term that God used in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses says, Tell me what your name is so I can let him know, you know, who sent me. Who's... And God responded this way. He says, Just tell him. I am sent you. That is the eternally existent one. Jesus uses exactly the same term for himself. He and the Father are one. He has seen him as seen the Father. Fifthly, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Not only did he create everything by his word, by just a mere force of the exertion of his will, but he also maintains and sustains it. Now, at our farm, you know, we're kind of modern, you might say. We're very mechanized, we're computerized, and we have all sorts of time-saving devices on our farm. And those are all well and good. They make our lives a little bit less physically demanding, perhaps. But those things all have one thing in common, and that is they break down. Or they need serviced. Or they need service and they break down anyway. And so what it what it's resorted to, what it's come to is this, is that Alex and Ted and I were merely glorified maintenance men. And we spend most of our, or a good portion of our time, simply keeping this labor-saving equipment functioning. I would love to be able to keep things going by what I say or the mere force of my will, and we wouldn't have those breakdowns anymore. You know, I say that comically. I don't mean to make light of what God is able to do. He keeps everything in perfect order. You know, I can tell you without a doubt that, you know, in June 29th, four years from now, I can tell you exact time. I can't tell you, but I can look it up and tell you. What time the sun will rise, what time it will set. And I'm perfectly competent in making, that, uh, in making that prediction. If I step out, and I know little about the stars and astronomy and everything like that, but I can res- recognize certain things, and if I go out on a clear fallen night and I can see the stars, I can rest assured the next time I go out I can find them again. And they're held in perfect order, in perfect position. This is all balanced. It's all maintained. It runs smoothly like a watch. And he does that by the force of his will, by his word. So, that's why Jesus should have credibility. That's quite a resume, isn't it? When he speaks, we should listen. We should pay attention. So, what did he say? Well, I want us to look at, and I didn't understand, I didn't know what Woody was going to read or the readings up here for the lighting of the candles, but we want to look at John chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 14. And we're going to go to verse 20. The real famous verse, of course, is in verse 16. We're going to start at verse 20, though. This is what Jesus said. If your Bibles are such that Jesus' own words are in red, this is all in red. It's a direct quote. Jesus said this, John chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might him, excuse me, but, excuse me, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, 
for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So I want us to look at verse 17. It says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us because, because Jesus wanted to give mankind an alternative to judgment. And that is salvation through grace and mercy. He gave us to give that alternative. On one hand, we could have judgment. On the other hand, we could have salvation through His grace and His mercy. Now, this term judgment, we tend to put in kind of an ominous cast on it. But judgment is not necessarily ominous or to be feared. Judgment is merely examining the facts and then coming to a verdict. In this text, however, it is ominous, and here's the reason why it's ominous. The facts will be examined on everyone, and a verdict will be given, and the verdict is universally guilty. For what one of us can stand and truthfully say, I've never told a lie. I've never stole anything. I've never spoken bad or evil, but I've never harbored hate or malice in my heart. I've always, from the time I was this high, I always did things that I knew were to honor my parents. And I certainly have never looked at anyone other than my spouse with, with a lustful feeling. Never done that. And I certainly has never spoken disrespectfully about God. Who one can make anyone can make that kind of statement truthfully? No. So here's the judgment. Yeah, here we're going to examine the facts, and when we do, there's only one very possible, and that is guilty as charged. So Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that there might be an alternative. He offers us salvation through grace and mercy. In Luke chapter 18, one of my favorite passages, we see the scene is set, and here is a Jesus telling a parable, and the scene is this, that we have, we have two people going up to pray. They're going to the temple. That would be the church of that day. And Jesus is going to contrast them. And one person that went up to the temple to pray, if you will, was a Pharisee. He was a religious zealot of the day. And the other person that went up to temple to pray was a tax collector. He was the IRS man of the day. And I think we think a whole lot more of a current IRS man than they thought of the tax collector that day. Uh, We probably hold ours in higher regard than they were held at that time. He was the lowest of the low. He was typically corrupt and and, uh, took bribes and and so on, was, was held in uh, universal low regard in that society. So here you have the scene set, and there's two people going up the world to pray. And the Pharisee, the religious zealot, says something, but it's really not a prayer. It's more uh, infomercial, if you will. And he's going to inform God how wonderful he is. He's, he's, he says, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like others. And he goes on to list a litany of things that are are his virtues as he sees them and things that he doesn't do. And he says, I thank you. I'm particularly not like that tax collector right down there. That's not really a prayer, is it? He's informing God how wonderful he is and what wonderful things he's done. And the implication is clear. And the implication is this, that because he is and has done all these wonderful things, that God owes him. God owes him something. You know, every other religion other than biblical Christianity says something like that. In one shape, form, or another. That if you do the right things, if you are the right kind of person, God owes you. He, he, he's in your debt. He owes you some sort of reward. And in, case, in most cases, they say that would be heaven. 
Now contrast that to the other individual, the tax collector, the IRS man of the day. He makes no pretenses about anything. He has a realistic view of who he is. And what does he say? He says simply this. He says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, Jesus' comment on all that is remarkable and should be noted and grasped and embraced. And Jesus said this, I tell you the truth that this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified. And that, that term for justified means to be declared righteous. Tax collector was guilty. There is no question about it. We're not, we're not even bringing that into play. He was guilty as charged, if you want to be. He called upon God's mercy, and Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that man went to his house justified. He was declared righteous, even though he was not righteous. When somebody says, when Jesus says that a man has been justified, it is exactly the same as this man was saved. Was he guilty? Absolutely. Was he justified? Absolutely. Why? Because he called upon God for mercy. And then Jesus ties it together. He says this, I tell you the truth, that man went to his house justified rather than the religious zealot, the Pharisee. And he goes on to say, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, so we would have an alternative to judgment, and that is salvation through grace and mercy. See, if we reject, if we reject him, if we reject Jesus, we, we choose judgment. This is our choice. We choose it. In essence, what, what we say is, bring it on. I was born in America, and I am a self-made man, and I have pulled myself up by the bootstraps, and that's fine. You, you want to you wanna evaluate me? That's good. I'm good for it. Let's go. That's a very bad idea. That is a very bad idea, but that is the choice we make. Jesus says this. He says, listen, he says, he who believes in him is not judged but he who does not believe him has judged already. He's chosen that. And we know what the verdict is. It's universally going to be guilty. And he says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. Now, the Apostle Paul said something quite similar in tone in Romans chapter 1. And starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Made it evident to him. But what happened? It wasn't, it wasn't that they didn't know the truth. They suppressed it. Don't confuse me with the facts. I don't want to hear the facts. Does anybody, realistically, anybody believe in the story of evolution? I mean, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about species dying out. I'm not talking about variation within species or, or this sort of thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the so-called fact scientific fact that, you know, there was some matter at some point in time and then through the application of cosmic energy over billions of years and so on and so forth, it, it or matter organized itself and it got a little bit more organized and more advanced and more developed and here I am. 
Nothing plus nobody equals everything. That is what the evolutionists preach. That is what they preach. And it is, it is being forced upon the world as fact and truth when, in fact, try saying that about any other, the, the same principles about into any other field and see what happens. They'll say, come with me, please. And we're going to take you to this white room with real high ceilings and no windows. And we're going to give you a little suit that does this to your arms. It's pure madness. It is an affront to human rationale and reasoning. Does anyone really believe that? You see, deep down, they don't. They don't believe that. It's not that they're not aware of the truth. God made it evident to them. You can see it. It's everywhere. Look at the stars. Look at the complexity Every of the size. Just look at the tiniest, tiniest portions of the atom, which they're, I think they're still finding particles that they haven't known before. The massive variation between that and what we see, what little we can see of the universe. That was an accident. That was blind luck, pure chance. This is what people believe. Is it that they don't know enough to know better? They know enough to be They suppress the truth. And is it any wonder that people that hold this, this position have animosity and anger against a Christian who says, hey, I believe in, I believe in creation. I believe that God did that. There is persecution and anger against anyone that would take, have the nerve to take the position that actually this world is a result of a creator. It's not an intelligent being. It is God Almighty. Why? Our text in John tells it very quickly. He says, <laughs> they love darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and he does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. It's no wonder that you don't find a lot of people in churches, or shouldn't find a lot of people in churches, that believe this balderdash of evolution. They're running away from the, they're running away from the light because their deeds are evil. Here's, here it. Here's a simple way to understand it. Are you running to the light or are you running away from the light? If you're running towards the light, that's a good thing. If you're running away from the light, you better take note. You better take note. Deeds, your deeds are evil. Your thoughts are evil. It's not that we don't know enough. We suppress the truth that we do know. So, what is the dividing line the dividing line in our text in John chapter 3 is very clear. He who believes in him runs to the light. He who does not believe in him runs away from the light. It's real simple. It's real basic. So, here's the dividing line. Here's the litmus test, and that is belief. I think it's five times in this little passage that we read. It's, it's stated, believe or not believe. Now, what's, this is an important thing. So what does it mean to believe? Does it uh, mean that we acknowledge the fact that Jesus was a historical individual, that he lived at one point in time? That's not what it means. Uh, face it, you know, <clears throat> in Jesus' environment of that day, there were lots of police, people acknowledged that he was there. Many people knew it, were aware of it. They didn't doubt his existence. They might have even thought some pretty good things about him. Might have thought that, you know, here, guy's got some good ideas, kind of interesting. Probably should listen to him. Is that what it means? To actually acknowledge the fact that he was a historical person? Our text has a little clue to that. And in verse 18, it says, He who not, does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So here it is. What's in a name? You know, I can tell you my Social Security number, 
and that will serve as a purposes a purpose of identification to the government and my credit cards and whatever else that you do online that require a social security number but that tells anybody absolutely zero about who I am they have no idea what what that translates to they have no idea my height weight my personality the things I can do can't do none of that What's in a name? A name isn't just merely a means of identification. A name defines who we are. Uh, A couple years ago, we did a series at the Homestead on the names of God. And it listed out, I can't remember now how many different ones we looked at. But anyway, we did a whole series. I think it was a, a series of 40 installments on the various names of God. And with each one, we looked at what that name meant it described a certain attribute or characteristic of God. It defined who he was. And so when Jesus says they didn't believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God, it meant didn't believe he was who he said he was. Didn't believe that what he said defined himself was true. It, in essence, was calling him a liar. I mean, what is it? What else is it if... Somebody tells you, I am this way, and you don't believe that. You, in essence, are calling him a liar. And Warren Wiersbe, a a great Bible commentator, put it this way. He says, it's pretty simple. He says, God simply wants to be believed. He wants to be taken at his word. Is that too much to demand? So who did Jesus say he was? Jesus said he was the Messiah. He said he was the Savior. Do you believe that? I read you the credentials that he has. Is that reasonable that he could do that? So there's a dividing line. Do you believe Jesus is who he said he is? There it is. Great question. So he had something to say. That's the reason the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He also had something to do. Go back to our text in Hebrews. said this, he said, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you have a King James or New King James version, the word for purification is purge. And I kind of like that. Purging me, just eradicating, getting rid of it. So he purified and eradicated the, the, the whole problem of sin. Had something to do. Where did that happen? That happened at the cross. Why did it have to happen? Well, we see that salvation is not through what we've done. Salvation is through God's grace and mercy. But if we look at the characteristics of God, we see, well, he is kind, he is loving, he is gracious, he is patient. And you can go on and on with all these superlatives when talking about God. But one thing he also is, is just. And our sin, my sin, all those things I did, the lies I told, the times I lusted after someone other than my spouse the times that I harbored hatred and bitterness and malice in my heart, the times when I was younger that I didn't honor my parents, the time that I can tell you years ago, and I'm afraid probably some of you might even know me before the time I became a Christian, guess what? A lot of of blasphemous words about God came out of my mouth. All those things happened, and you can say, well, you fill in that blank in your life as to how, it, how that fits in with you. You're going to have a list that might be a little different than mine, but you've got a list nonetheless. Every one of us does. Well, it's one thing to say that God is going to show us mercy and grace, and it's another thing to say, you know what, God is a just God. And you know what, God can't simply sweep all this under the carpet. He can't sweep my lies under the carpet. Would that be just? You know, put it this way. you got a justice of peace, and somebody is caught on the surveillance camera robbing the jewelry store and comes before the justice of the peace, and they evaluate the, the evidence. 
here it is. This guy is guilty as can be. And the judge says, case dismissed. It's not even going to worry about it. Go, go home. Go your own way. A man rapes a 16-year-old. Ruins her life. Guilty. No question of it. DNA evidence is all there. Eyewitnesses, everything you can imagine. Appears before the judge, and the judge says, Go your own way. It's okay. You know, do better next time. Is that is that just? Is that right? God cannot ignore and sweep under the rug all the things that you and I have done. It must be dealt with. It must be purged. It must be paid for. And that happened at the cross. And so in God's scales of justice, if we were put on the scale, it goes straight down. And there's nothing I can do to balance that out. And what Jesus did at the cross is he took all that. He took that penalty. He was insulted. He was flogged. He was whipped. He was crucified. He suffered the pain, immense physical, emotional, and spiritual pain by taking my guilt, your guilt, so that God's scales of justice could be balanced. So that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He doesn't see all those things. He sees his son. He sees his perfection. He purged that. He made purification. Lamb of God came into this world. The Word became flesh because he had something to do. He was on a mission. Well, finally, he says, he says this. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, and that image comes, <laughs> so many things come into my mind when I think that. And I think, you know what? I, of course, he wouldn't be, but I would be. I would be totally exhausted after all that. And it, it sitting down, <sighs> it's done. It's over. With him, it signified a completion of what he had set about to do. In John chapter 19, verse 30, when he's on the cross right before he died, he uttered these words. He said, it is finished. Same words appear on bill of sales, if you will, of that era, and it means paid in full. Jesus paid it in full. It was done. It was complete. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's that certain sense of fulfillment, of satisfaction for a job well done. He assumed a great... A place of honor, and he assumed, lucky for us, a position of intercession. He's our counsel. He's, he's sitting right there. And when it comes up, he says, you know, I went through it all. I experienced it all. I know how tough it is. Understand, you know, and he, he's, he's our attorney. He's going to bat for us all the time, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Well, we answered at least two of the reasons why the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst. He had something to say. He had something to do. He accomplished that. question remains is, you know, why the there and then? Um, in Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 4, it says that was the fullness of time. You know, in God's timing, that was the right time. That was the perfect time. I don't know that I understand that. You know, I look at that. And I look at the circumstances uh, which Jesus had to deal with, and I'm thinking, you know, that was pretty primitive. You know, to be born in that society at that time, uh, the average uh, longevity, if you will, was about 40 years. Uh, if you were a Hebrew male, you know how tall you likely were? 5'2", five 5'3", five you know what you weighed? 115, 120 pounds on average. Why is that? Are the Jewish people so genetically short? Are they kind of advanced dwarfs or something? No. They didn't get enough to eat as they're growing up. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, we have a lot of, a lot of Hispanic uh, immigrants in our country. And, and you know, you, you look at them, and as a whole, you, know, you see the average... You know, they might be five, the males might be five, six, five, seven. Very rare to see a tall, 
tall one. And, but it's an amazing thing that when a 5'7 Hispanic male marries a 5'2 Hispanic female, they get six-foot kids. Why is that? Because they get enough to eat. They get enough to eat. They never got enough to eat in Mexico, a good portion of them. Never got enough to eat. And that was, that was the kind of culture that Jesus would have been born into. He was, uh, you know, medical care? Are you kidding me? It just, it, you know, basic infant mortality? Terrible. You know, a good percentage of the, the children that were born never survived to adulthood. Tough. This is a tough situation. This is nothing like we know. And what I want us to look at a little bit is how it started. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And, you know, it didn't start easy either. You know, it says, and I'm going to read a little commentary about this in a minute, but it talks about, you know, there's no room in the inn. And so Jesus was born in a stable. And for many of us, the image that comes to mind then is this great nativity scene. And, you know, here's, you've got a few angels out there, they're looking, and you have Joseph and Mary, and they've got this wooden structure, and it's got perfectly nice, clean barley straw in there. And the, and the baby is all wrapped up uh, nice, and, you know, it's all, uh, and so on and so forth. Almost certainly that was nothing like the way it was. They say that it's very likely the, the manger that Jesus was born in was in a cave, you know, that's where the animals would go for protection during the, you know, during the, uh, you know, inclement weather with rain or snow or cold or anything like that. If that is the case, it almost certainly reeked of ammonia. And sanitary conditions? I just, no, we don't want to go there. A baby was born in nothing that we would consider satisfactory. For, for a human being to be born. Those were not the conditions. It started off badly and continued to be hard and rough for his entire life here on earth. Well, Woody gave me this narrative. It was written by a man by the name of Vance Hafner. And he talks a little bit about this. And the passage is out of Luke chapter 2, verse 7 and focuses on that time when there was no room in the inn. And he says this, Today, amid this commercialization, commercialized Christmas, this overworked headache of expensive giving, God's gift, the first Christmas gift, stands often unrecognized. It's easy enough to sing Christmas carols and put on pageants, the tribute of our lips, but how many of us honestly face Christ himself and his challenge of discipleship at any cost. There is room for many things today, room even for much about Jesus, but is there room for him? Let it be observed that so far as we know, the innkeeper may not have been unkind or discourteous to Joseph and Mary. I don't read that he drove them away when they came to him. He may have been very polite and even expressed his regrets, but just the same, there was no room for him. So today, most people turn down the Lord because they are preoccupied. They have nothing against him. They may even speak well of him, but there is no room. Their hearts and their homes are filled with other things. So today, men have bought land and oxen and married wives and cannot entertain the Lord Jesus, their time and thoughts all already taken up with other things. Listen, maybe not bad things, but things too important for what they are worth. Things too important for what they are worth. The innkeeper may have said, come back tomorrow, some other day. Some men say that at oh, some more convenient time they will receive the Lord. They do not really mean to pass him up. The house is just too full right now. And after they have straightened things up a bit and made more room, then he will be welcomed. But days lengthen into weeks and months and years, and life is gone. And there has never been enough room for Jesus. I beg of you this Christmas day, do not make of it a hollow mockery by paying a wordy tribute to the Christ while you refuse him 
your heart. It does no good to go to church and listen to cantatas if you have barred and bolted your heart against Christ. Today, he would graciously enter as Savior and Lord. One day, he will come as a judge, and then you cannot escape him. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us so that we might have an alternative to judgment, and that might would be salvation through grace and mercy. And the question I have today for us all, are we running to the light, or are we running away from it? And, uh, you know, the days are short. These, these are the end days. This is the last time. We know it didn't end the other day. The, we don't, nobody knows the day or the hour. But it will be soon. You know, I've, you know, if maybe I have 20 years, maybe 30, I don't know. But I've, that, if the next 20 goes as fast as the previous 20, that's soon. You kids, you know, you don't look at that. You kind of laugh at <laughs> that it's soon. So it's over. It can't be, you know, it can't come soon enough for you guys. You know, you want to grow up and stuff like that. And... It's coming. It'll be here before you know it. And so are you running away from the light or running toward it? The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us so that we might have the alternative to judgment, which is salvation through grace and mercy. So let's pray. Father, again, thank you now for this this passage. We thank you that uh, you are reliable and trustworthy. We see that you are the creator, sustainer, you are the heir. You radiate glory. Um, you are God. And uh, so when you speak, we need to pay attention. We need to listen. We thank you for making it possible that we could avoid uh, judgment because we know what the verdict would be. And so we're thankful to you for having done that. And we would pray now. Uh, we do pray for this country. We pray for revival. We pray that... Uh, you know, uh, and we understand that things won't be fixed in this country until the hearts of the men in this co- and women in this country are dealt with. And so we would pray for revival. We would pray that we would embrace it as a country. We would cease running away from you, that we would run toward you. Uh, thank you now uh, for this Christmas season, and, and we pray a blessing on each one that's here. Um, may they... Uh, have a greater understanding of who you are and, and what what you've done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.